when I was a kid growing up in Florida, one of my very best friends was attacked by a group of guys who beat him up so severely that he ended up in the hospital with broken ribs and a punctured lung. I don't remember exactly how old I was. I think I was about 12 years old at the time, but I I remember the event like it was yesterday. My friend was cornered in a baseball dugout by this group of guys, and they kicked him and hit him and punched him and beat him severely. Sometime after that, I ran into a brother of one of the guys in the group that had done this to my friend, and I asked him why his brother and the others had done this. I asked him what my friend had done to cause them to be so angry with him or upset with him that they would do such a thing. I'll never forget his answer because it left such an impression on me. He said that my friend really hadn't done anything wrong, and in fact, some of the guys in this group didn't even know my friend. But these guys were angry about some other things in life, and my friend just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. The reason why that answer left such an impression on me was because it was the very first time I can ever remember being exposed to random anger, random hatred, and random violence. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything when I say that there are a lot of angry people in our world. When they don't get what they want in life, they take out their anger on whoever happens to be nearby. We regularly hear about reports concerning or under the heading of road rage. Rarely is road rage actually prompted by or at least isolated to what happens on the highway. Most of the time, the person who explodes was already angry about things in life, and the event on the road is what pops the cork. When that person perceives that he or she was treated unfairly on the road, that's when all of this pent-up anger bursts open. We've all heard stories, and they are far too common, about the post office worker or the lumberyard worker or the office worker who comes to work with a loaded gun and unleashes his anger by firing randomly on fellow employees. Sometimes the targets are specific people, but many times the targets are simply random. They are random because the issue isn't really the people and what they have or haven't done. The issue is the pent-up anger of the person who is upset because he isn't getting what he thinks he deserves from life. So again I say there are a lot of angry people in our world. They are often able to hide their anger or cover their anger, but given the right circumstances, it comes to the surface. Now, why am I introducing the message with this topic? Simply because we see an example of that same kind of thing on the day our Lord was crucified on the cross. 
the anger that was spewed at him, not by those who knew him somewhat, religious leaders, etc., but those who didn't even know him, the anger that was spewed at him was shocking. Let's turn together to Mark chapter 15 as we continue our look at the 15th chapter of Mark's gospel and working our way through the entirety of Mark's gospel. I invite you to please follow along as I read verses 24 through 32. Mark chapter 15, verse 24. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription above his accusation was written above, and the, and the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. This is Mark's account of the crucifixion of our Lord. Each gospel writer records different details depending on his specific purpose. Of course, that entire process was guided by and directed by the Holy Spirit of God, which is what is meant by the doctrine of inspiration. Mark includes some details that the other gospel writers don't include, and he leaves out some of the information that the other gospel writers do include. As you read through these verses, it is clear that Mark wants us to see the utter disregard for Jesus and the undeserving hatred that was directed at him. If you want to summarize this scene as painted by Mark's pen, you could say it this way. The soldiers basically ignored Jesus and were more interested in his clothing. Those who passed by blasphemed him. The Jewish leaders mocked him, and the two robbers reviled him. What a picture of humanity as a whole. There are those in society who, like the soldiers, basically ignore Jesus, and their only interest in him is what things they can get out of him. There are others who, like the ones that pass by, don't even know who Jesus really is because they've only believed what they've been told about him, so they dismiss him as a fraud. There are others who, like the religious leaders, are so bound by their religion that they aren't willing to let go of it to embrace the Son of God as he really is. There are others who, like the robbers, want Jesus to, to deliver them when they get in some kind of 
trouble, and if they perceive that he won't do that for them, they revile him. Those are the four groups of people that Mark mentions as he describes their reaction to Jesus while he was dying on the cross. So we'll outline our thoughts this morning around those four groups. First, the soldiers. Verse 24 tells us, And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Four soldiers would have taken part in the crucifixion, so they divided up the garments or clothing of Jesus. There were the sandals, the headdress, the inner garment, and the sash or the belt. Each of the four soldiers took one of those items. In addition, the Gospel of John tells us that there, were, there was also a tunic that was seamless, so the soldiers didn't want to rip it into four parts. Thus, they decided to gamble for it. That is an exact fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, which says, They divided up my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It was the custom of Jewish mothers to make a seamless tunic for their sons just before they left home. So it is very likely that the tunic for which the soldiers gambled was the garment Mary had made for Jesus before he left home. It's amazing to think of the indifference of the soldiers to this situation. The Son of God is paying for the sin of the world, and yet they are totally indifferent as they gamble for his tunic. Yet many people today are just as indifferent, just as cold, just as insensitive to the death of Jesus. In fact, there are probably some in that camp who are present here this morning. Maybe you think, yeah, but, but I'm here at church, yes, and the soldiers were there at the crucifixion. Presence doesn't mean anything. It's your interest in, your relationship to, your commitment to the Lord that's the real issue. In fact, sadly enough, this can even happen with us as believers. We can become so busy and so preoccupied that we become indifferent to the cause of Christ. In some ways, we can even become like the soldiers. Verse 25 tells us, Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Since the reckoning of time in that culture, now there, was, there were differences among the Romans and the Jews, etc., so this gets confusing sometimes when you're reading the Gospels to determine now, is this Gospel writer using Jewish time or Roman time, etc.? But suffice it to say, this would have been 9 o'clock in the morning. That's when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Once the soldiers had done that and cast lots for his clothes... Matthew 27, 36 tells us, sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Did you hear that? Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. What a pathetic statement. They just sat down and watched him suffer, 
waiting for him to die so they could get on with the other things in life. There was a cold callousness and complete disregarding of who this man hanging on the cross really was. What a picture of so many people in the world today. They don't really know who Jesus is, and they don't really care. They don't care at all. Their only interest in him is the things they may be able to get from him. Other than that, they basically see him as an inconvenience to their lives. That was the attitude of the soldiers. Sit down, watch him die, hope it's fast so you can get on with your day. Verse 26 says, And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. The soldiers put the placard on the cross above Jesus' head, but we know from John's gospel that Pilate was the one who had it written. Because Pilate hated the Jewish people so much, he wrote this to take a jab at them. He knew this would be widely read because the place where Jesus was crucified was a very public place. In fact, if it took place, I mentioned last week that there are a couple different places in Jerusalem that are the debated sites of the crucifixion. If it took place in the one that is known as Gordon's Calvary, then it would have been what is today a bus stop. The parking lot of a bus stop. How fitting. Just a public place with all of this activity going on. Therefore, Pilate had the statement written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. This was an attempt at psychological revenge from Pilate on the Jewish hierarchy for forcing his decision to have Jesus crucified. The game between Pilate and the Jewish leaders that had begun at the trial continued on at the cross. Pilate thought he was making a joke of the Jews at the expense of Jesus, but he had no idea that God, in his sovereignty, used him as a puppet to state the truth about the death of Jesus for all time. Jesus is the King of the Jews. And that reality was written down in three languages to announce to mankind who this man really was and really is. Little side note here, the fact that this placard was placed over the head of Jesus suggests that his cross was not the capital T-shaped cross that was sometimes used, but rather the small T-shaped kind that we usually see depicted, which has an upright piece protruding above the cross beam. I only mention this because there are sometimes debates about the kind of cross upon which Jesus was crucified, and this little fact gives us some insight. There was evidently an upright piece protruding above the cross beam upon which the soldiers placed this placard or this sign. So that's all that Mark tells us about the soldiers. They were completely caught up in material things as they divided up the clothes of Jesus and cast lots for his seamless tunic. Like many people in the world today, they gave no thought whatsoever to the spiritual aspect of life because they were consumed with what material things they could accumulate. 
if these soldiers never came to faith in Jesus later, I cannot imagine how they felt when they died and realized that they sat by the cross of the one who could have saved them if they had believed. It's the same way people are going to feel who go to church but never really give their lives to Christ. When they die and end up in judgment, their minds will be tortured with the thought that they were right there around the solution to their sin problem, but they didn't do a thing about it. They were too preoccupied with material things. I hope and pray that's not true of any of you. Verse 27 continues the description. Mark says, With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. Mark mentions the fact that Jesus was crucified in the center. The criminal in the center was the preeminent criminal. He was the worst criminal of the bunch. And indeed, Jesus was the worst of the bunch from the standpoint that he was bearing all our sin. John Calvin said that when we read these words, quote, we are assuredly too stupid if we do not see plainly in this mirror how much God abominates sin. And we are worse than stones if we do not tremble at such a judgment. But when, on the other hand, God declares that our salvation was so dear to him that he did not spare his only begotten Son, what an abundance of goodness and grace do we here behold, end quote. In the sovereignty of God, Jesus was crucified in the center as a demonstration that when he bore all our sin, he was worse than any other person in a positional sense. He took your sin and my sin upon himself and bore the wrath of God in our place. That's the part of the crucifixion that we can't see. We can see how the soldiers treated him, and we can see how the crowds treated him, and we can see how the Jewish leaders treated him, and we can see how the robbers treated him, but we can't see how God treated him. God poured out his holy and righteous wrath on his own beloved son. That hurt Jesus more than anything these people did to him, and it hurt the Father equally as much. But that's the only way our sin could be remedied. Jesus was the central figure of the crucifixion, and rightly so. The other two men were paying for their crimes against society, but Jesus was paying for our sins against God. It is very likely that these other two men who were crucified on this day were cohorts of Barabbas, and that Barabbas was the one who was going to be crucified with them. But you, you know the story. You will remember that the people in the crowd at the trial were persuaded by the Jewish leaders to choose Barabbas to be released over Jesus, so Jesus was crucified in place of Barabbas. 
It's a perfect picture of what the death of Jesus really was. It was a substitutionary death. The old term that was commonly used, we don't use this term very much anymore today, but it was a vicarious death. Vicarious simply means substitutionary, in the place of. Jesus died in our place. He took our punishment when he took the wrath of God, and because he was eternal, his death has eternal merit. That is why his death on the cross, even though the whole ordeal lasted only six hours, was able to purchase our eternal salvation. Some people, many people, wonder about that. I've heard that so often through the years. How could the death of Jesus on the cross, lasting only six hours, and maybe only three hours under the wrath of God, the the time where there was darkness, how could three hours under the wrath of God provide eternal salvation? And how is it that those who reject that pay for their own sin eternally? The answer is because he was eternal. His death has eternal merit. He died physically and spiritually so that we don't have to die spiritually and eternally. His death was a payment for our sin as God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That is alluded to in the next verse in some of your translations. We have a textual issue going on here. But verse 28 says in my translation, So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. This verse is not in all Greek manuscripts, so it may not be in your Bible, or if it is in your Bible, it probably has some type of brackets or footnote or something to indicate it's not in all the ancient manuscripts. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors in the sense that he died with transgressors. And he was also numbered with the transgressors in the sense that he became a transgressor positionally by taking our sin upon himself. The phrase comes out of Isaiah 53, verse 12. Jesus died between two criminals. Think about that. Jesus died between two criminals criminals. We'll come back to these criminals in verse 32, but let's look at the next group at the cross, the people who passed by the scene. Verse 29 says, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days. These were merely people who passed by the scene. John 19.20 tells us that Jesus was crucified near the city, just outside the walls, in a public place. The crucifixion didn't take place off the beaten path. Whenever the Romans crucified someone, they wanted it to be right out in the open so that it would send a message, so that it would say to people, crime doesn't pay, and they wanted many people to see it. So they put it on a main thoroughfare where you had to walk by it and observe it. Therefore, many people walked by this crucifixion scene. And Mark mentions some of them who were onlookers from the crowd. They didn't know who Jesus was. 
but they had heard some things about him that weren't accurate, and so they assumed he was a fraud. That's why, why they're mocking here in verse 29. They shook their heads in disgust, and they hurled insults at Jesus. By the way, this is still how some people in our world relate to Jesus. What I mean is, they hear bits and pieces about Jesus, some of which is accurate and some of which is not accurate, and they draw their conclusions about him based on this sketchy and inaccurate picture they have. This is especially the case today with the popularity of books and films about supposed gospels that the church wants to hide and, and uh, doesn't want to get out there and all of this garbage that's portrayed as being factual. So people hear that stuff and they say, oh, you don't even know who Jesus really is. You go by the Bible, but there's a lot more to it than just the Bible. So what happens is, for many people, is they don't check Jesus out for themselves. They don't research him to see who he really is and what he really said. They just go by what others have to say about him or what they happen to hear, and then they draw their wrong conclusions. In this case, the onlookers had heard a misrepresentation of something Jesus had said. They had heard that Jesus had said he would destroy the temple and build it in three days. That's what they had heard, and that was evidently from the gospel accounts a pretty widespread statement in society. Oh, this guy said he's going to destroy the temple in three days he'll build it. It's actually a reference to John 2.19 where Jesus literally said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. John 2.21 tells us he was speaking of the temple of his body. He wasn't talking about the stone temple. Furthermore, he didn't say that he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. He was telling them what he was going to do when they destroyed the temple of his body, but they twisted the entire statement, and based on that inaccuracy, many people considered Jesus a fraud. So they mocked him. They said in verse 30, Save yourself and come down from the cross. They figured that if he had stated he was going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, then surely he could come down from the cross. So they mocked him by challenging him to come down from the cross. They had heard some inaccurate information about Jesus, and based on that, they dismissed Jesus as not being who he claimed he was. As I said a moment ago, this is still what so many people do with Jesus. They hear what others have to say about him, and they never check him out on their own. They assume that what others have to say about Jesus is accurate, and based on that, they reject him. Oh, the sense of regret they will feel when they enter eternity and realize that they should have looked at Jesus for themselves. They should have listened to Jesus for themselves. That was the onlookers, those who were just passing by. The next group that Mark highlights is the Jewish leaders. Verse 31, he says, Likewise, the chief priests 
also mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Some versions also include the Pharisees in this, li- in this list. The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders were the Jewish leaders. These were the men, remember, who manipulated Pilate into crucifying Jesus. And these were the men who convinced the crowd to ask for the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Now they join in the mocking. They say, he saved others, himself he cannot save. You know what is fascinating about that statement? Is that it reveals the fact that central to the ministry of Christ was his saving people. And that has still come down through the centuries as one of the most common phrases that Christians use to describe their position with God. They say, I'm saved. Or you'll hear people say, Is so-and-so saved? Has has he ever been saved? That goes all the way back to the ministry of Jesus. It was known he came to save people. Save people from their sins. Save people from judgment. They knew that. That's why they said, he saved others. Of course, they're mocking at that. He saved others. Himself, he cannot save. Verse 32, let the Christ... The king of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. This is very similar to what the onlookers said up in verse 30. They said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. What they were saying was this, Jesus, if you do that, we will believe in you. That's what the Jewish leaders are saying here, but it wasn't true. You know it wasn't true. Jesus had already done so many astounding miracles, and rather than believing in him, they hardened their hearts even more. For example, in John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Did that convince the skeptics to believe? Absolutely not. As a result of that miracle, the religious leaders determined that they had to kill Jesus. John eleven fifty three 53 says, Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Did you hear that? He raised Lazarus from the dead, so we better kill him. He's getting too popular. Instead of that remarkable miracle convincing them to believe in Jesus, it convinced them that they had to kill him. But that's not all. Listen to this amazing statement in John 12, verses 10 and 11. It says, But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? They determined that Lazarus also needed to be killed to do away with all of this powerful evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be. So don't believe for a minute that if Jesus had come down from the cross then these skeptics would have believed in him. They would not have believed because their unbelief was willful unbelief. It wasn't an issue of lack of information, lack of data. It wasn't that they were confused. This was willful, hard-hearted unbelief. When Jesus rose from the dead three days later, they still didn't believe. Matthew tells us that they even paid some people to say, well, uh, the, the soldiers fell asleep and someone came and stole the body. Cover up the evidence. Do away with the evidence. That's what they did in John 11. They tried to 
kill Jesus, tried to kill Lazarus. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, they determined they had to silence the apostles and stop them from proclaiming the resurrection. So they threatened them. So this statement here in verse 32 is, is just a cover-up. It's an excuse. It's exactly, listen, beloved, it's exactly what a lot of people still do in regard to Jesus. They make foolish demands. And they say, if Jesus will just do this for me, then I will believe in him. The fact is, they won't believe in Jesus. If they won't believe in Jesus by looking at and listening to his word, they won't believe, period. Do you remember the story Jesus told in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus? Lazarus died and went to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and went to Hades. While he was there in Hades, he asked Abraham to send someone to his brothers to warn them about ending up in that place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the word of God. Let them hear its warnings. But the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, no. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. It's exactly what some people assume today. They assume that if the miracle is astounding enough and amazing enough, then that will convince willful unbelievers to repent. But listen to Abraham's response. He said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. In other words, if they won't be persuaded and repent because of the warnings in the Word of God, they won't do it no matter what kind of spectacular miracle they see. Jesus knew that was the case, which is why he didn't comply with this foolish suggestion about coming down from the cross. But their mocking didn't stop there. Matthew 27, 43 tells us that they also said, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. I shudder when I read that verse because I can't help but contemplate what those men are thinking right now. What are they thinking right now? Unless they later repented and believed in Jesus... When they died, they went directly to their judgment in Hades, and they have been there ever since. I can't help but wonder if they think about this event and how they mocked the very one who could have saved them from their sin and saved them from their damnation. I can't help but wonder if that thought has tormented their minds for the last almost 2,000 years of their judgment in the flames of Hades. That was the Jewish leaders. Mark closes this paragraph by returning to the robbers. He says at the end of verse 32, even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Matthew and Mark both tell us that these criminals reviled Jesus. Why did they revile him? Luke gives us a clue when he tells us that one of them said, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. 
You see, these criminals just wanted Jesus to give them what they wanted. They wanted to be delivered from crucifixion. And when it became clear to them that he wasn't going to do that, they reviled him. What a picture of so many people in our world. They want Jesus to do what they want him to do. And when he doesn't do what they want him to do, they dismiss him, or they despise him, or they revile him. They view Jesus as some kind of genie in a bottle, and they expect him to give them whatever they want and do for them whatever they want. When Jesus doesn't comply, they want nothing to do with him. This entire crucifixion scene depicts so much of humanity today. There are those who, like the soldiers, basically ignore Jesus, and their only interest in him is what things they can get out of him. They're, they're totally enamored with material things, and they pay no attention to the one who was crucified to pay for their sin. There are others who, like the ones that pass by, don't even know who Jesus really is. Because they've only believed what they have been told about him or what they've heard about him in society, so they dismiss him as irrelevant. There are others who, like the religious leaders, are so bound by their religion that they aren't willing to let go of it to embrace the Son of God as he really is. There are others who, like the robbers, want Jesus to deliver them when they get into some kind of trouble or they're in a mess or they're in a pickle. And if they perceive that Jesus won't do that for them, they revile him. This scene here in Mark 15 is a picture of humanity today in the way most people view Jesus and most people relate to Jesus. But there is a bright spot in this story. Mark doesn't mention it. But Luke does. Luke tells us that eventually one of the criminals repented and believed in Jesus. Luke 23, 42 says of that criminal, Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded by saying, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That man became the first trophy of our Lord's grace from the cross. Out of all the people who were gathered around the cross, out of all the people who passed by on that day, he was one of the few to respond the right way to Jesus. What about you? Where do you fit in all of this? Are you like the soldiers and totally enamored with material things? Are you like the onlookers who dismiss Jesus because of inaccurate information, never really checked it out for themselves? Are you like the Jewish leaders and committed to your religion in place of a genuine relationship with Christ? Are you like the criminal who only wanted Jesus to rescue him from trouble, or are you like the one who eventually repented and called out to Jesus? Be like that one. Call out to him. Because Romans 10 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on him. Let's bow together as we close.
As we bow together in closing this morning, I would encourage you to think about these four categories of people and what characterized them and to see to what degree that may characterize you. It's possible for us to be like the soldiers, just totally enamored with material things, giving no thought to the spiritual. It's possible for us to be like the onlookers who dismiss Jesus based on limited information, inaccurate information, stuff we've heard, stuff we've been told, stuff that's in the movies, stuff that's in the books. And so Jesus is dismissed as being a fraud. It's possible for us to be like the Jewish leaders, so committed to religion in place of a genuine relationship with Christ. It's possible for us to be like the criminal who only wanted Jesus to rescue him from his problems, and then when it was clear Jesus wasn't going to do that, to just revile him. But it's also possible for us to be like the criminal who eventually repented and called out to Jesus. I hope and pray that's you. Call out to the Lord Jesus today. Father, as we once again contemplate and read and meditate on the events surrounding the cross, there's always so much more to this story than what we grasp the first time through it or the second time or the third time or regardless of how many times we've read the crucifixion account. There's always more. So much took place on that day during those six hours when you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, as we contemplate the scene there that day as Mark records it here in chapter 15. We see a picture of society today, a picture of our world today, and we even see ourselves in a mirror in some of this. And so, Father, our prayer is that your Spirit would stir our hearts so that we would not be cold, indifferent, calloused, but we would be like the one criminal who eventually was broken and who in humility said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He just called on the Lord. And Romans 10 tells us, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, for anyone present here with us this morning who needs to call on the name of the Lord Jesus, may you draw that person. Because we know what it says in John's gospel. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So, Father, we pray you would draw that person, that your spirit would soften his or her heart to bring that person to call on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask the same thing for all of us in the sense of that your spirit would soften our hearts to these truths that maybe we've seen and read many, many times through the years. May our hearts always be moved by these truths May our spirit be sensitive to them. May our hearts always be tender toward this amazing truth. 
that Jesus died in our place as our substitute for our sin. We pray these things in his matchless name. Amen.